0: Good morning, LEFC. Thank you. You expect you to be awake. You've already had four cups of coffee, some of you. Some of you have. Um, well, my name is Matt Sawada. I'm one of the, the pastors here. Specifically, uh, I'm blessed to be able to oversee adult ministries. So, Pastor of Adult Ministries here at LEFC. And I wanted to take a second to thank you guys. Uh, this is a special Sunday, in a way, because it's the first time I have had the opportunity to preach since our sabbatical. And it, uh, you, as a body, allowed me and my family the space to get away. It was an incredible blessing. It was so healthy. And we just thank you guys for the priority that you have placed on those those rest seasons. Um, it changed us as a family, and we're just grateful. So, thank you for the gift that you gave us. Um, well, this morning we're going to be in the book of Luke. And I've got some, some friends, some of these ushers who are coming down to, to hand out Bibles. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you can either open up your phones, turn to you. The U Version app. You can find L-E-F-C there. Or raise your hand. They'd love to give you one here at LAFC, uh, We see this word is more than just a book. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So it's important. This is God's word. It is truth. We will be in it in this morning. And if you're receiving one of these Bibles, take it home. You need to have one next to your bed. Spend some time in it and learn what God tells us through his word. Well, this morning, we are, uh, like I mentioned, we're going to be in the book of Luke. We're continuing this series on uh, Jesus reimagined, life reimagined. And we've been looking at Jesus to to see how we can learn to live by looking at how Jesus lived. Uh, This morning, I'd love to give you this opportunity hopefully, you will take this opportunity to reassess what is your attitude towards your sin? What's your attitude towards your sin? And I'm, I'm guessing you approached this morning from probably one or two places, maybe somewhere in between. In one, one camp, uh, many of you might have been approaching Sunday morning with a lot of guilt, maybe there's a lot of shame you've had a rough week you've done things you've said things you've watched things you've been living in a way that that you feel you feel this burden or maybe you're approaching this this morning not out of out of that but but you're approaching this morning From a perspective of uh, sin? Matt, what's that? I haven't thought about sin since last Sunday. I'm kind of on this spiritual cruise control. And sin's not necessarily something that I struggle with, Matt. So maybe you're approaching this morning from a place of a a hard heart. I've I've checked the boxes. I've done enough. I attended WBF, and now I'm here. I'm good, right? Well, we've been, uh, these last couple weeks in particular, actually since December, we've been in this book of Luke, um, just watching Jesus and seeing how, what we can learn from the way he lived. But specifically, we've been, these last two weeks, it's kind of fun, this is a three-week mini-series on repentance in a way. About, uh, two weeks ago, Ed Sherman, one of our elders, preached. And I, man, this concept has kind of stuck. He's, he said that we see people from three different, in three different ways. They could be scenery. They could be utility. I'm getting something from them. Or they're actually a human. Here's a person who has a need. And so, in the middle of a crowd, there's that girl who just wants to be known, not just seen. And then last week, Tony took another step. He, he began to, to talk about these risky comparisons. And if you remember, there's some scary pictures. Katrina, 9-11. And in that moment, there were a lot of lives lost. Well, we had some outspoken Christians who made some comparisons and said that these things happened because of sin in their lives, but yet at the same time, believers died in those too. That God doesn't judge us for our actions. There are consequences to sin, but some of these disasters are not because of lifestyle choices. And so Tony explained what repentance meant. And we're going to take that another step forward and talk about this morning how heaven rejoices when one person repents more than when 99 sinners realize they don't need to repent. Luke 15, verse 7. And so this morning, if you guys wouldn't mind opening up your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, if you received a Bible from one of my usher friends, we're on page 978, all right, Luke 15. This morning, my phrase that you're going to hear me repeat a few times is this, your attitude to your sin not only affects your approach to God, but also your approach to other sinners, your attitude to your sin affects your approach to God and your approach to other sinners. We're going to see this played out in chapter 15 as well as in chapter 19 as Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus. So read with me. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So what seems to be a really innocent two verses communicates quite a bit. It really shows us what Jesus was was doing, what he was about to speak into with this parable. What we see here, you get these two groups of people. The first group, you got tax collectors and sinners on one side, and They're gathering around Jesus to hear him. The ESV says that they drew near to Jesus. They're leaning in. They realize their need, and they see the one who can meet it. Now, you've got another group of people in verse 2. You got these tax collectors and these in these sorry they're looking at the sinners tax collectors and scribes I'm sorry these Pharisees and oh I'm just I'm a little off there. The second group, you got Pharisees and scribes. These teachers of the law. And while group A was leaning in, this group is leaning back. I can't believe Jesus is actually interacting with them. You can almost hear the disgust dripping off this voice. The ESV doesn't use the word muttered. It uses the word grumbled. They were shocked at the way Jesus was interacting with them. You see the difference? You see the difference between A and B? You've got one group over here. They knew they had a need They recognized their sin and they leaned in. They drew near. They turned to the one who could meet it. And then you've got group B over here. They see themselves as clean. They're superior. See, group B is above them. I'm already clean. You see what I've done? Why, Jesus, why are you hanging out with the lesser crowd when you could have time with me? You kind of feel the smugness. You feel their pompousness. You see, they were, they were good by what they did, by how they looked. They looked highly on themselves because of their works. Oh, well, Jesus being the one who perfectly understands social awareness. He feels the tension. He recognizes that you've got this group doing this and this group doing that. And he understands this, the vastly different approaches to sin. And he addresses it. He tells this parable that we're about to read in verses 3 through 7. And then we're going to look at chapter 19 and see him actually play this out with this wee little man named Zacchaeus. So chapter 15, let's continue here. That was verses one and two. In verse three, Jesus then tells them a parable. Verse four, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Wow, again, Jesus uses a very practical illustration You see, shepherds were common. This was something that everyone understood. Very common figures within culture. A hundred sheep was probably a mid-sized flock. All right? This was not large, but it wasn't teeny. It was middle. And everyone understood that it was the responsibility of this shepherd to not lose one. That it was his job to leave with a hundred, and it was his job to bring a hundred back. This was his job as a shepherd. I I think it's really similar to elementary elementary school field trips. (laughs) How many of you How many of you have ever chaperoned a field trip? Yeah, you guys are going to understand this. Let's go to the zoo with fourth graders. Philadelphia Zoo, and you're assigned six of them. All right, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, where's Johnny? Oh, six, Johnny, get over here. That's the first five minutes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a day of continual head counts. It, you don't want to be that chaperone who loses One. You'll never be welcomed back. <laughs> oh, Sean lost one today. <laughs> it, like that, that wouldn't go over well. As a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor prior to being here, I would take groups of middle schoolers places. It was the same way. It, you know, you got 50 middle schoolers you're trying to corral, and they all have minds of their own. And Tyler laughs. <laughs> And so, in that moment, you know, you're, every time you change places or you get back into a car, you count to 50. How many in that van? How many in this van? How many this? How many in that bus? Why are we one short? Either our leaders can't do math or Andrew is somewhere else. And so, you're, you're continuously doing these head counts. Now, what if you left someone at the zoo? Or what if you left someone at that gas station? You drive away, and then you realize, I'm missing one. <laughs> you feel the panic. Now, some youth leaders might be praising God, <laughs> and them, but, but there's a panic. Your heart is starting to race. You're wondering, oh my goodness, I just lost someone's baby. I just lost someone's fourth grader. Uh, what am I going to do? You turn around and you go back to the monkey cage. It's probably where they are. And, and you, f- you find that kid. Can you imagine the reunion? That kid has been stressed, whether they want to show it or not. They've been worried. They've been lost. This chaperone has been stressed. They were worried. What if something happened to Johnny and so that reunion, you can imagine the hug, it probably might not the, the pound, you're pounding fists. Hugs might not be appropriate in today's culture. The high five. You can imagine the joy and the relief over finding Johnny. The the shepherd is experiencing that same thing. I don't know if he named his sheep. Right? Probably not but he just found Johnny. And in verse 5, 6, and 7, we're going to see this theme of rejoicing, that the the reunion really does allow us to rejoice because the shepherd has found the sheep. In verse 5, and when he finds it, He being the shepherd. When the shepherd finds it, being the lamb, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends. That's such a funny word. It's not like he had a cell phone, right? He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me for I found my lost sheep. I tell you, verse seven, that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You see that theme? The shepherd rejoices. The friends and neighbors rejoice. Heaven rejoices when one repents, when one is found. And that rejoicing happens more when one repents than when 99 are sitting here smug and not repentant. This does not breed joy, but this does. You see this tension that Jesus is poking at? Verse 7 is a direct response to the contrast of attitudes we saw in verses 1 and 2. He's stepping all over the toes of those Pharisees. We've got two groups with two different attitudes towards their sin. And the reality is, is that we, you and I, me and you, are just like that sheep. We are sheep who fall into both categories, and we need to live a life of repentance. See, repentance is both initial justification and ongoing sanctification. Repentance is an opportunity for us to not... Let me hear me say this. this. It is an opportunity not to re-save ourselves. We don't need that. That's already been done. But it is an opportunity to be reminded of our daily need for a savior. And when I take my sin and I hold it up and I say, God, thank you for Jesus because he died for this, whatever this is, What in a sense I'm doing is I am turning to to God and I'm seeing the beauty of Jesus and what he has done. And that has become more attractive than this that does not satisfy. Christ is the only thing that does matter and that can satisfy. But yet we turn daily to things that we try to substitute for him. That's why repentance is needed day in and day out. My sin doesn't satisfy, he does. You see, your attitude towards your sin not only affects your approach to God, but also your approach to other sinners. Tim Keller, in, I think I quote Keller every time I preach, Uh, But Tim Keller, in The Reason for God, says this. He says that sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from God. He continues and says that sin is not just the doing of bad things. It is that but it is also the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship with God. If you are a human in this room, you struggle with that. We put things above Him all the time. And they're not always bad things. But when we replace Him as the ultimate, that's called sin. You know, for me personally, this comes in the form of approval. I have struggled and you've heard me mention this. I've struggled for years with laboring to just appease God or laboring to get the approval of others. That's mattered way too much to me. You know, it's almost as if I've have lived as to not make him or those around me angry. And so if I misstep, what's God gonna do to me? If I misstep, what are they going to think? What are they going to do to me? And I've made this an ultimate thing. While it's kept me in line, it's kept me looking good, it's it's become this thing called an idol. And it's not just trying to do anything just good. My goal has been to, I'm trying to avoid anything too stupid or openly sinful. The problem with that is it's very superficial. Because while I can look good and not make anyone else angry, the inside of me is a mess, The inside is in this moment, it, is, it can be rotting. It's almost like you're, you're playing a game of chess with somebody and they don't want to make a move. So it's, they're only playing defense. And so they just mirror your moves until you have to make that move. That's how my relationship with God is when I fall into this mess. I'm not doing anything that honors him, I'm not doing that dishonors him because I'm not really doing anything. Or it's like playing ping pong with that person who never really tries to hit it hard. Just pink, pink, pink. It's like playing against the backboard, right? They don't want to take a risk. Well, that's been, that's been parts of my life where I haven't wanted to take a risk because what is God going to do to me? Or what if I anger him? That's living in fear. My approach to sin was that it was something that I could fix. My attitude towards my sin was off. And I figured that if I looked good on the surface, if I looked good to to the people, reading, praying, not cursing, not being overly selfish, then I was all good. It was in a sense that my performance could outshine the sin that was present and then so often bubbled out of my heart. Because in reality, if I look good on the surface and the inside is moldy and nasty, that comes out. It can come out in anger. It can come out in selfishness. It comes out in frustration. It comes out in anything. It comes out in self. And so, because of that, repentance, what we're talking about here this morning, is hard for me. Being honest, because it means I'm admitting a mistake. But the the flip side of that is true. While repentance is hard, it's also really good for me because I'm admitting a mistake. I'm saying, God, that's why I need Jesus. Repentance is a reminder that I'm not perfect that I am in need of him. And I think so often, my story probably resonates with everyone in this room. We become our own God. And repentance is that turning back to what God has done through Jesus on the cross. And in a way, we're confessing our tendency to be God in our lives. But the reality of all of that, when we repent, what we're beginning to realize, what we're clinging to, is that God has adopted us into his family and has sealed us with his spirit, Ephesians 1. We're remembering the truth when we repent that we don't need anything more than what we've been given in the person of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more that we need. When we repent, we are clinging to this truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, the end of it. And at the beginning of Romans 8, when we repent, we are free to accept this responsibility. I need to preach this to myself without fear or condemnation. Romans 8, 1. Now there are consequences, but the sin has been paid for. It's done. But yet, what we do, we're so fickle in our faith, right? We try to justify our sin. We try to downplay our sin. We try to pretend things are better than they really are, cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside is still crummy. That's what we do as humans. And so our attitude towards our sin affects our approach to God because it's not just dealing with our circumstances. We're not just repenting about what we do. We need to repent of who we are. We are sheep who have gone astray and we've turned away. Isaiah 53. And so the question then is, do you see sin as something you need to continually repent of? Do you see yourself as a sheep who wanders? Or do you have a difficult time identifying your sin in your life? Maybe you feel pretty put together. Maybe you feel like I'm not that lost sheep anymore. But the reality is, is that attitude towards sin makes a difference in the way we approach God and others. Let's fast forward a couple chapters to Luke 19. See here, in verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, verse 2, and he was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was so short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So we ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Let me set the scene just a little bit here. Uh, Jewish, in Jewish times, uh, hospitality was pretty huge. And so when a teacher like Jesus, who had performed these miracles, I would imagine there was a crowd being ready to receive him. It's probably more like a parade. They wanted to hear, what was Jesus going to do in Jericho? They wanted to see it. They might, have, they might have had some sort of meal planned or feast prepped. There was a house possibly ready for him. But then it goes to identify this tax collector. He was Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector. Which we've discussed tax collectors in the past. They've, they're the ones that would skim off the top. They were responsible to collect the taxes of the people and then give them to Rome, and they could make as much as they wanted. So they stole, they cheated, they lied. People didn't like them. Well, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He probably was stealing money from the people who was stealing money. Here's a pyramid scheme in Scripture, right? And because of that, he was isolated. No one wants to hang out with this dude. No one wants to spend time with someone who's cheated and stolen but yet he wants to see Jesus. He wants to see who this guy is. He realizes his need, and he's drawing near to see Jesus. And in doing so, he exhibits curiosity, childlike faith, and he runs, and he climbs a tree. These things aren't things that men back then did. See, Jesus desired I'm sorry, Zacchaeus, not Jesus. Zacchaeus desired to be known by someone. I would tend to think that every one of us is just like Zacchaeus. That every one of us desires to be known and isolation was a big deal for him. I think isolation is a huge deal for us today. We are constantly connected to our friends, but yet who really knows us? that we've got all these relationships, but we feel more alone than ever. I think every one of us can relate to Zacchaeus. Identity issues, idolatry issues. Zacchaeus was elevating money more than relationship. And lastly, he was isolated. Guys, I'm going to step on my soapbox here. We are part of a church, a family and we need each other. We all have this innate desire to be known. Let's LAC be a church that grows and becomes really good at one anothering. At loving one another and caring for one another. That let's be different than any other social club out there because of Jesus. Off my soapbox. The beautiful part about this text is that Zacchaeus desired to be known by someone. He climbed a tree to see Jesus, and in verse five, Jesus saw him. What we see here, 19, verse five, it says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Whoa, Jesus saw him. Jesus knew him. Jesus was willing to include and invest in him. Jesus was willing to take a risk and love him. Wow. That's our Jesus. I would say that if there is something we need to learn from Jesus in this text, it's exactly that. This is how We should see people, not as utility, not as scenery. We should see people and love and include and know them like that. Take the risk because Christ has already paid any penalty that might happen because of it. Well, check out these responses in verses in the next couple of verses. Verse six, Zacchaeus hops down at once and welcomes him gladly. Oh, Jesus, I love you. Yes, I'll do this. In verse seven, all the people saw this and began to mutter. ESV says "grumble." Same word from Luke fifteen. <laughs> Group B grumbles again. He's gone to be a guest of a sinner. How could he choose them over me? What? How is this even possible? You chose a sinner over a meal with me? And then you see the contrast getting a little clearer, the stark contrast between the crowd and Zacchaeus when he stands up in verse eight and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay it back four times the amount. We see Zacchaeus welcome him gladly. We see the crowd grumble. And then we see genuine faith in the life of Zacchaeus. He stands up and makes a proclamation, and he calls him Lord. There's a new relationship going on here. Lord. I promise here and now to give away half of my money to the poor. And then on top of that, I'm going to pay back four times what I have taken from anybody. His idolatry of money was just exposed. And he just released it. He said, you know what? This money is not satisfying to me anymore. I'm going to replace it with Christ. His true repentance just changed his life. Zacchaeus is now a different man, and out of that true repentance came worship. Your attitude towards your sin not only affects your approach to God, but also your approach to other sinners. So then Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man, Zacchaeus too, is now a son of Abraham. We don't have the time to unpack that son of Abraham. Go back to Genesis 15. Go back to Romans 4 and see about how faith in Abraham, faith Abraham's faith saves, not just a heritage, not just um, a cultural heritage, National connection. And then we'll end with this Luke 10, 19, verse 10. This potentially is the key verse in the whole book of Luke. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus did this. He came from heaven. He was born a human to live a perfect life, to die a horrendous death, to experience for the first time separation from his father so that you could enter into a relationship with his father. Jesus came, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And he did this so you could not only repent once, but also live a life of repentance. You see, your attitude towards your sin affects the way you approach God and others. In this text this morning, we've looked at a couple different groups of people. We saw the tax collectors and sinners. They were on this side. Their attitude towards sin was needy. We saw Zacchaeus transition from curious to convicted to convinced. We saw him transition from lost and lonely to found and known. And because of Christ and Zacchaeus' life, he's now responding out of gratitude with generosity instead of greed. And then we saw these Pharisees, these grumblers who compared themselves horizontally to the people around them. We saw this group of people who were justified in their holy actions, and they did not see their need for repentance, partly because they didn't see their need. They didn't see their sin. But there's a third group that we skimmed past. In Luke 15, we saw a shepherd, and in Luke 19, We saw Jesus. In these moments, you know, when we start associating who can we be like, we are not the shepherd. And in Luke 19, we are not Jesus. It is not our job to seek and save anybody. Jesus is our savior shepherd. Jesus is the one that does that. But what we do see, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost so that we can join Him on mission. So that we can repent and be a part of what He is doing in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. You see, our approach to sin affects our approach to those around us. Are you concerned for those who don't know him? Are you concerned enough, like Christ, to see them, to know them, to invest in them, and then to introduce them to the one who can solve their isolation issues? To the one who can solve their identity issues? Well, maybe this morning you need to, as we sing this last song, repent of your attitude towards sin. Maybe this morning, you need to, while we sing this last song, repent for your poor approach to God. You've been God, and it hasn't been Him. Maybe this morning, as we sing this last song, you need to repent of your poor approach to those around you, to your oikos. Maybe, as you sat here this morning, you were very much like Zacchaeus, and you approached this morning because you were curious of who Jesus is and are here because you wanted a better look at him. Guys, I pray that this morning you were able to get a clearer glimpse at the person of Jesus and how he offered his life and endured death so that we might be able to enjoy life with his father. We'll have people up under the cross to pray with you during these songs. You have a communications card to to communicate with us as a staff so we can be praying. Thankfully, Jesus died to cover our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you have loved us in your son, Jesus. And Lord, it is an honor to give you the praise that you're due this morning. Father, thank you for moments of time like this where hopefully we've been um, confronted with how we see sin, how we approach our attitude towards it. Uh, Father, I pray that you would be honored not just in, in our, our hearts as we sing this last song, but as we, as we leave. Be honored uh, with our lives today. Father, thank you for this parable, the lost sheep. Thank you for this story, this um, real life example of Jesus loving Zacchaeus. Father, help us to love others just like that. We love you, Father. We're thankful for Jesus. Well, guys, we have a father who loves us. It's amazing to sing that chorus. But as we leave today, let's live in that. Let's let's rest in that, knowing that we aren't perfect, but that his son was. Help us to live today, admitting our mistakes, and then repenting and turning back to Jesus. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this family and for an opportunity to know, to be included and invested in. Father, we give you our lives, and we thank you for today. And we pray this in your son's beautiful name. Amen. We love you guys. Have a great day.